Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? If you're enjoying the show, there are a lot of great ways to support it. One of the best ways to help keep it up and running is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. Go check it out. There's a bunch of kickbacks for supporting it with just a small financial contribution each month. And as I said before, you help keep this show up and running in the process. So thanks to everyone that's kicked in so far. But today, we are revisiting a really interesting conversation that I had back in 2016, which is kind of weird to think about. But this episode is all about litter trapping plants. Yes, there are plants out there that actually purposefully trap litter from the canopy and use it. I don't want to spoil why or what they're doing or how they do it. There's a lot of different strategies out there. But joining us to talk about this was Dr. Scott Zona. You've heard him on the podcast before, but I believe this was his first appearance. So why make you wait any longer? Dr. Zona is a great order of science, and this topic is near and dear to his heart. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Scott Zona. I hope you enjoy. Well, it's gray and rainy and drizzly all day today, so my, my, I got my shoes and socks wet. So oh no, not a good day. <laughs> well, what's 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 the temperature? Oh, uh, it's probably like seventy-five degrees oh, out there. Okay, I th- do you think you can make it? <laughs> <laughs> I get no sympathy from you, huh? Uh, no, I'm just jesting. I uh, I'm just stuck here in East Central Illinois, looking at uh, you know low wind chills. Yeah, not good. <laughs> yeah. So what about Very you? Good. Who 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 is Doctor Scott Zona? Oh gosh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I know I I probably am most known for my work with palms. I've been working with palms for most of my career, um, and I'm I'm involved in the International Palm Society. I'm the, the co-editor of their quarterly peer-reviewed journal. So um pretty pretty involved in the palm world. Very cool. Um what's your focus mainly? Uh is that taxonomy or ecology? Yeah, taxonomy taxonomy, anatomy, a little bit of a ecology, but I'm I'm certainly not an ecologist, but um but mostly taxonomy, morphology, anatomy. All right. What brought you to palms specifically? Um well, growing up in South Florida, you know, I'm kind of surrounded by them down here. Um Actually, I can. I really, I can pinpoint it to to one event. Um, I, I was interested in orchids when I was when I was a kid and grew orchids. And of course, again, we grow orchids outside here, so I didn't need a greenhouse or anything. <laughs> and a friend of mine who was also an orchid grower gave me a little seedling palm that he had bought at a palm society sale. And this little seedling palm had a name on it, and I looked and and went to the to the library to find information. This, of course, was way before Google. Um, <laughs> went to the library to find information on it, and there was one book on palms and kind of rare palms at that time that was available. Mm-hmm. It was called Palms of the World, and it mentions this, this palm specifically by name, and it had been collected uh, in the wild by David Fairchild, for whom Fairchild Tropical Garden here in Miami is named. And I had grown up reading Fairchild's books and going to the garden and whatnot. And so kind of like, I kind of focused on that connection. I was really interested in about, about that palm and could find nothing else about it because, you know, other than 
the original description, which was in a, a German journal that I didn't have access to mm-hmm. and couldn't read, couldn't read even if I had. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it was, um, it, it, so that kind of sparked my interest. And then when I got into graduate, graduate school, I sat down with my advisor. This was getting my master's degree. And we talked about some, some plant groups that I could work with and, and palms came up and we settled on a project that I did and, and then continued on doing that working with that same genus uh, for my PhD, uh, doing a, a taxonomic revision, and then um, years later, I did a taxonomic revision of that genus of that little seedling palm that I got when I was a kid. Wow. So uh, kind of came full circle. That's incredible. And 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 had the opportunity in New Guinea to see it growing in the wild and collect it, and so it was yeah, it was one of those sort of things that had been in the back of my mind for decades and to be able to finally accomplish it was uh, a a good feeling yeah that must have felt really uh special yeah let's let's back up a little bit because palms are interesting i mean i can't think of another tree that is more iconic and easily recognized than a palm tree but uh you know you said palms of the world that's that's quite a diverse uh and open-ended category there so what what is special about palms are they actual trees oh well gosh interesting questions okay um (laughs) Yeah, let's, we'll, we'll back up just a little bit. Palms are, are a, a natural family of plants, so they are they are probably pretty easy to recognize. Although in Great Britain they call things palms that are actually dracaenas, and oh, wow. and people call palms that are actually cycads. So so common names get get you know get a little off course, but right. but most of the time most people kind of know a palm when they see one. And they might think of coconut palms or uh, parlor palms or fan palms, things like that, that that you know most people know or have seen on TV or whatever. But there are there are groups of plants uh, around 2,500 species. I'm trying to think what's the latest count of genera in the palm family. I think it's it's around uh, gosh, how many genera? Yikes! <laughs> I want to. I want to say. I want to say 250 genera, but I'm. I'm not. No, that 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 seems too much. So yeah, 185. I think is the latest number of genera okay. in the palm family. So around. So not quite 200 uh, genera of palms, and uh, they're mostly tropical. As you know, as you can imagine, uh, there are a few palms that grow in in the more warm, temperate parts of the world. Like, uh, well, of course, we have. Some native palms in the southeast United States. Right. Um, there even there's even uh, Sabal Minor, which is a little fan palm, grows even in southern the little southern tip of Oklahoma. Wow. Um, so just over the border from Texas, and of course there there's one native species in in Southern California. You know, Palm Springs is named <laughs> for the palm that that grows there. So yeah, there's there's palms here in the United States, uh, but of course, if you really want to see palms, you got to get down into the tropics, and and uh, yeah, it's uh, they're incredibly diverse, especially in places like northern South America, that that's a real hot spot for palms, mm-hmm. uh, and then and then Malaysia, and Indonesia, New Guinea, that part of the world, that's another big hot spot for palms. Very cool. But uh, so you mentioned litter trapping plants, and that's kind of a specialty of yours. Uh, can you describe quickly, like in layman's terms, what a litter trapping plant is, and then we can uh, go from there? Yeah. Well, litter trapping plants are plants that have evolved a specialized architecture for trapping leaf litter. And, and we use the term leaf litter, but by that we mean any 
detritus that falls from the canopy. So, you know, it can be dried dead flowers, it can be bird droppings, dead insects, whatever falls. These plants trap the, that litter as it falls and basically form their own little compost pile, kind of like a little private compost pile. Wow. And that litter then, as it decays and, 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 and the, the nutrients are released from it, uh, the plants can take that nutrient, those nutrients up and use them for their own, wow, their own purposes. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so, you know, a lot of these plants are epiphytic plants. So things like bromeliads, uh, many of which not only trap litter, but also trap water. So they, so you get sort of this slurry of decaying vegetative matter and, and water and that soupy mixture releases a lot of nutrients that the bromeliad can take up. Uh, but a lot of things like a familiar houseplant is the bird's nest fern, and that is a, a fern that grows normally as an epiphyte up in the trees in, in Asian forests and has a rosette of leaves that trap litter in the center. Wow. Yeah, uh, I think that's going to be a shock to most people. Yeah. Yeah, most people, you know, would grow it as a houseplant, and, you know, it doesn't really trap litter in, in when it grows in your house. Uh, well, I guess depending on your level of housekeeping. Um <laughs> But and so these plants can survive without the litter if they get the nutrients from some other source. So in horticulture, of course, if they're in a you know nice pot of soil and getting fertilizer and all that, they yeah. can do fine. So uh, that's the real adaptation here is a way of uh, taking a very nutrient poor habitat and kind of saying, well, I don't need the soil; I can just capture and make my own. Right, and and so for epiphytes, you know, which don't have any roots down in the soil, that's a really important thing. I mean. Uh, Epiphytes that have their that are growing, for example, on, in tree bark, uh, they can get some nutrients from rainwater that washes nutrients down the tree bark. It's called stem flow. They can get some. There's there might be a layer of moss and whatnot on that bark, and and there's some uh, decay and and uh, hummus formed right there uh, that they can get some nutrients out of. But these litter trappers kind of go one step further and kind of go out of their way to make. Uh, or to capture litter that they can then use for their own benefits. So this is happenstance. This is a specific set of anatomy dedicated to doing just that. Yeah, and and uh, another example that might be familiar to to you and and listeners, uh, especially if you if you're in the warm parts of the world, but even again if you're outside the, the tropics, are, are the staghorn ferns. Oh yeah, and these have uh, these are ferns with two different kinds of leaves. There are the leaves that grow out from, and these again they're epiphytes, so they grow out from from their host uh, tree, and they are they're out there doing their photosynthesis and burying the sporangia and doing everything that fern leaves normally do. But then there's this other sterile leaf that grows kind of slightly oppressed to the tree trunk and littered accumulates behind that sterile leaf, between the tree trunk and that sterile leaf. And then the fern sends its roots into that, that area and, of course, takes up the nutrients as that, as that leaf litter decays. Wow. Uh, so those, in fact, that was one of the earliest recognized litter trappers. Uh, this, and these were recognized as litter trappers uh, was in the very late 19th, early 20th century. Wow, so relatively recent in terms of exploring. Well, plants. yeah, I mean, the, the plants, of course, had been known since uh, the 17th century. There are uh, illustrations from uh, from early pre-Linnaean works showing these plants and illustrating them, 
but nobody really understood at the time why they had two different kinds of leaves uh and what these what the what the sterile leaf was actually doing and it really wasn't until the late 19th early 20th century that it was understood what these are doing um and then so far i've been talking about a lot of epiphytic plants but there are terrestrial litter trappers too in fact a lot of palms and in fact that's kind of how i got into litter trapping is because there are palms, understory palms that live in the forest mm-hmm. uh, that have uh, a single stem, uh, as most palms do, and then uh, a, a rosette of leaves there at the top of the stem, kind of typical palm fashion. But the leaves are often have a very short petiole, and the leaves are, are, are undivided. So they form a nice rosette there, and, uh, and that rosette then can trap, uh, can trap falling litter. And it's, uh, it's quite interesting to see it in the forest because at first you think, oh, that poor plant, it's, it's <laughs> being buried by all these dead falling leaves and twigs and stuff. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, most people, like if you, you look for a f- photograph of these palms, most photographers, and I'm guilty of this too, we go and we tidy up before we take the picture. Right, right, and it right. makes for a nice picture, but it's uh, totally not telling the story of how this plant makes its living. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I would never picture a palm doing that. And I mean, I've seen the very thing you're talking about going, oh, geez, that palm has seen better days. Yeah, there are little palms like in Central America, some of the, the little uh, uh, genomas and, and uh, uh, calyptogyne. These are several small understory palms. Uh, especially in Central America, you can see them. They're pretty common, but they're not confined to Central America. They also, I've seen it also occurring in Madagascar and Southeast Asia. So there. So this is something uh, that's probably evolved multiple times in response. Oh, to yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Now that's an interesting idea here because you know when we were talking about epiphytes, and I've seen it myself with some of the anthuriums, you see the roots growing into the material, like you mentioned. Uh, it's kind of eerie. Ah. Uh, so that you can see where the specific adaptation is for nutrient absorption, but a palm, I mean, I, I'm guessing the roots are still where they would normally be found. Yeah, in fact, it's 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 interesting to kind of look at at where the nutrient absorption is happening because there are different there are several different architectures that trap litter, uh, but the nutrient absorption might be in different places. So, yeah, with a with a with a palm, probably not a lot of nutrient absorption is happening directly into the leaves. Whereas in a bromeliad, it's got especially one of the, the tank bromeliads that has water and, and, and nutrient sludge there in the center, yeah. it's getting most of its nutrients absorbing directly into the leaf tissue. Whereas whereas a palm, it's probably what's, you know, very little is going directly into the leaf. What happens is, is the nutrients are released through decay. And then as the rain comes, it, it washes that, that nutrient down and it either travels the stem flow or drips directly down into the root zone of the palm. And then the roots take it up as, as it would any nutrient. Wow. So it's kind of a, a multi-step process between acquiring and then disseminating nutrients. Yeah. And of course, it, it depends on uh, the, 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 the what's called the brown food web, the, the detritivores that process that dried leaf litter. So the plant has uh, a team of, well, it's not, I don't know if is there active recruitment, but something else is doing the breakdown, not the plant. Itself. That's right. That's right. Because, you know, the, the kind of the, the first responders are fungi and bacteria that start breaking down the material. And then you get mites and and uh, small arthropods in there. You can get worms, annelid worms, uh, flatworms uh, and termites and things like that. And they break down all that, that uh, compost. Wow. 
and, and release the nutrients. And, uh, and so people have looked at the animals, the insects and worms and whatnot that are living in these, this, this trapped compost in epiphytic ferns, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very much very similar in its composition to the fauna that lives in leaf litter on the forest floor, really? which is not surprising because it's, they're, they're doing the same thing. Right. They're, they're, you know, taking that leaf litter and processing it. So yeah, you know, you get, you get worms, kind of annelid worms, or, you know, what we would call earthworms mm-hmm. up in the canopy. How, um, how, up, how do they get up yeah, there? Yeah, well, they, they, they manage to get up there. I, and, yeah. and probably, uh, you know, I know earthworms can certainly during, especially during wet, wet seasons can, can climb up onto trees and will do so. Uh, and I guess maybe they just, you know, Make it to the first epiphyte, and then can from there can make it to the next epiphyte. I don't. I actually don't know how. Yeah. It'd be very interesting to study recruitment in and community assembly in these these little islands of of compost up in the trees. Right, and I mean the, the analogies with island biogeography and distance to the you know mainland kind of thing would apply. Absolutely, there. it goes to show you just how beautiful, like the the wonder that science can invoke. Uh, you know, you ask one question, you find one answer, and then you have you know how many more questions that. Now... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean I've I, I published this one paper on litter trapping. In fact, I just did a a seminar on it yesterday to the department and. Uh, so many questions afterwards that I couldn't answer, you know, unanswered <laughs> questions about, you know, well, what exactly are the nutrient cycles doing and all this? And, you know, I'm a taxonomist. I don't know about nutrient <laughs> cycles. <laughs> right. I pled ignorance. Yeah. Um, well, that's okay. That's but, the, the key to collaboration. Yeah. And there's, uh, so far, I've been talking about how leaves can trap nutrients, uh, in, you know, in a, in a crown of leaves, like in a, in a bromeliad or a bird's nest fern or a palm. Yeah. Uh, but there are some plants that have individual leaves that trap litter. There's a, a, a very well-known, uh, at least in, in uh, litter trapping circles, a well-known orchid uh, from Borneo called Bobophyllum baccarii. And it's a little epiphytic orchid. And each it produces each leaf. Each leaf is sort of cup or funnel-shaped and sort of pressed against the, the tree that it's growing on. Really? And so instead of getting a crown of leaf producing a funnel, you get each leaf that is produced making oh, yeah. a funnel. Yeah. So you, and, and there again, maybe some of the nutrients are being absorbed directly through the cuticle of the leaf. I don't know. Uh, or alternately, it's leaching through and, and then the, st- the roots, of course, on the, on the bark of the tree are then, are then uh, taking up those nutrients. Probably a combination of both, actually. Wow. That's um, fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, and then there's a another kind of of architecture, and these are litter trapping root baskets. And this you see in epiphytic orchids and epiphytic aeroids. Okay. Uh, and, and in fact, in the bird's nest anthuriums, and this is a whole section of of the genus anthurium, uh, a large number of species uh, that have a these big strappy rosette leaves, so they look like sort of like a bird's nest fern, mm-hmm. uh, and they're probably trapping, or they are trapping, litter in their crowns. But then, below the crown, they have roots that grow directly up, and then they sort of stop growing. They they, they grow for a, a short distance, and then they stop. Hmm. And they form this sort of, oh gosh, how to explain it? It looks sort of like a, almost like a brush, right. or erect bristles standing up below the crown of the plant. And uh, these are litter trapping roots, wow, and wow. they don't 
they don't grow down and into the bark of the host and you know like a like a normal epiphytic root would you'd right. expect it you know basically they're there to hold on to the plant you yeah. know to keep the plant from falling off the tree branch uh and and there are other roots that do that but these particular roots have a slightly different morphology they tend to be more slender they they have a a, a kind of a limited growth span uh-huh. uh and uh they tend to have pointed tips and they they trap litter. Specific anatomy for that purpose. They, yeah, yeah. I mean, some people in the literature have called them pneumatophores. And pneumatophores are roots that you see on mangroves and other plants that are in waterlogged or you know oxygen poor habitats uh, that you know that 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 uh, help get air and oxygen to the root system for gas exchange. Uh, but this is not, these are not pneumatophores. They, they, they kind of grow upright like a pneumatophore, but clearly if we're talking about an epiphytic orchid or an epiphytic aeroid, yeah. there's yeah. no, there's no problem with oxygen or right. gas exchange and <laughs> they're, they're not waterlogged. <laughs> so, so these are not pneumatophores. And, and in fact, you don't see the, the, uh, the specialized tissue that you do in a pneumatophore right. for gas exchange it's called aeranchyma. Oh, yeah, right. aranchyma okay. is the 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 very very kind of poorest tissue. You don't see that in the roots. It's it's uh, even more visible on certain orchids. Again, these were even illustrated back by in the like the the 18th century by Romphius, a very famous naturalist that worked in Southeast Asia, Dutch naturalist working in Indonesia, and he illustrated this on an orchid. And probably people in Europe probably didn't even believe him because it looked so <laughs> improbable. These this uh, mass of roots growing straight up away from the away from the orchid and kind of forming this like it's like a, a hedgehog there at the base of the yeah, orchid. That's a really good but, way of describing uh, it. <laughs> but but you know I can show you photographs of living plants that look exactly like that. So yeah. so Rumphius was not exaggerating. was uh, wasn't taking in the artistic license. I've seen it in person in, in some of those anthuriums, like you mentioned, in Costa Rica. And it's it's almost eerie to see the roots, uh, you know, behaving that way. And like you said, it's like this weird pincushion of uh, little fingers poking up out of these this, this mat of detritus that's built up. It's really neat to see. Yeah, yeah. So there's, I mean, these uh, aren't small plants either. Some of them are, are, are quite large. It's like having a bathtub up in the, the forest. So this is a exactly amount of the biomass in, in a lot of these tropical forests. Absolutely, and in fact, uh, there was a, a paper published in Nature several years ago by uh, Elwood and Foster, who looked at invertebrate biomass in a forest in Southeast Asia, and they looked at the the invertebrates that were in the the tree canopy, mm-hmm. and then looked at the invertebrates that were living in the leaf litter trapped by birds' nest ferns that were growing epiphytically in the tree canopy. And by including the invertebrates that were in the leaf litter, they doubled the, the estimate of biomass for invertebrates in the forest. Wow, and that's um, that's saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. So you know, they and and the kinds of invertebrates they were seeing, of course, ants are are very uh, uh, abundant in trapped leaf litter. Uh, termites, mites. Uh, the, the, there's a whole. Uh, I think it's an order of mites that uh, is kind of specialized in detritus. Uh, these are the Arabitida mites. And then um, uh, springtails or Columbula mm-hmm. uh, are very abundant in leaf litter. So 
So, I mean, when you talk about, or anyone talks about biodiversity, especially in tropical forests, so much of it is tied up and dependent on these epiphytic communities. Yeah, and, and you know, it's only probably in the last few decades where where biologists have had easy access to the canopy. And I think that still, the especially the little microarthropods and, and small critters that live in detritus up in the canopy, those are still probably very poorly known. So that kind of taxonomic uh, work is, is still in its infancy almost. I think just basic taxonomic work, yeah, basic surveys and, and, and faunistic studies are, are need to be done there. Wow. Uh, but, it, you know, it does require access to the canopy, which is not easy. Canopy yeah. is way up there. <laughs> yeah, and someone like me who's who's got a bit of a, a fear of heights, um, that would probably <laughs> yeah. hamper my concentration. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I gave up climbing palms uh, <laughs> a while ago because... <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I did it when I was young and fearless, but I don't do it now. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a whole new, uh, set of challenges to overcome, uh, in terms of field work, you know, field work can be kind of stressful as is, so. Oh yeah, exactly. And then trying to do it, you know, 60 feet up in the air on a harness, it's not easy. I think my palms are sweating just thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) So your, your main claim to fame is taxonomy, right? So what is the daily work of, of a plant taxonomist? You know, that word gets thrown around a lot. I think a lot of people uh, know it exists, but don't truly understand what that work entails. So can you kind of talk us through what what your work centers on? Uh, sure. Um, let's see, where, where to begin? Um, right. For example, um, the nice palm taxonomy paper that I, that I did was looking at a genus from New Guinea, and I had made a field trip out there several years ago, mm-hmm. and we collect specimens, and these are not living collections. These are dried and pressed specimens that we keep in the herbarium. Yeah. is And, of course, I'm also taking photographs of the plants in the wild, you know, making notes of things that don't preserve well when they've been pressed and dried, especially big palms typically, you know, don't, it, it's hard to get an idea of what they look like yeah. when they're alive, with just looking at a few fragments stuck on a piece of paper. Right. So, um, so it's kind of for, I think more so for palms maybe than any other group, it's important to see the plants mm-hmm. in, alive in the field. Uh, it'd be very difficult to do taxonomic work just from herbarium specimens. So I did the field work and then uh, later visited several herbaria to look at their collections of this particular genus mm-hmm. and uh, was able to, able to uh, make. And of course, I'm, when I'm visiting these herbarium, I'm looking at these specimens, I'm looking at uh, the location where these plants were collected, uh, and then I'm taking a lot of morphological measurements. Uh, so I'm measuring things that I think might be important. Well, just to get an idea of what the plant looks like. So yeah. I'm, the size of the leaf, the size of the, the the fruits, you know, the number of stamens in the flowers and things like that. A lot of quantitative data. And then it sort of comes down to kind of synthesizing that data. I have, you know, I do it. Well, I, yeah, I still do it kind of old school. I'm, 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 <laughs> I, I have I have sheets, data sheets, for, and I have one sheet for each specimen. Oh, and cool. I'm collecting all my data. I suppose... Kids nowadays probably do it all on, um, you know, on a tablet with on a spreadsheet or something. Right. But um, I do it. I do it on on data sheets, and then it's sort of going through and trying to looking for patterns, looking for uh, something that might indicate that this group of specimens is different than that group of specimens, right. and and then and then determining historically what 
specimens have been named and just trying to decide as this group of specimens, does it already have a name or, uh, and if so, which name, because it might have more than one name, actually. Palms, particularly palms, uh, a lot of the early taxonomy was done by early workers in Germany that were not in the field. So they were getting specimens from all over the world. And, you know, it's almost like every new, every specimen was uh, described as a new species because it looked different than, you know, they had, they had very few specimens to work with and didn't have a knowledge of the natural variation that would occur in in any population. Right. And that too, I mean, knowing the range yeah. of what characters can possibly Yeah, because, I mean, you know, look around at your fellow human beings. <laughs> Could you pick one human that would represent right. the entire human race? No. No. You have to, you have to have a bunch of people to represent right. the diversity in, in the morphology. And our genome is surprisingly uh, pretty small compared to, I'm, I'm sure, what is possible for something like a, a tree. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And um, of course, now you, you bring up genomes. Of course, now, uh, in addition to morphological characters and anatomical characters, we can now get genetic characters, uh, sequencing DNA, and using those as characters. And again, trying to assemble groups that, that, that share genes from a common ancestor sort of thing. Uh, and, and now, of course, it's all done through computer algorithms. Uh, that that produce these sort of branching tree diagrams that show how things are related. Right. Uh, but it's still there's still sort of a it's not entirely subjective, but there is a, a, a subjective element of well, you've got all these branches now. How do you name them? I mean, yeah. you, uh, are these are these three branches all in one genus or are in one species, or should they be called three separate species? And, and, and there it, it it does get to be a little bit sort of subjective at that point because you know you've you've established different entities and now it's just a matter of what to call them well yeah i mean that's why we we we're constantly going to be seeing revisions as techniques get better and we start incorporating different data um, yeah but with palms i mean you always hear about how you know flowering if flower anatomy can drive evolution of plants is there any key diagnostic features that uh really a that you hone in on for palm taxonomy, and B that you think is driving the diversity uh, of palm. Ooh, taxonomy? gosh, that's a that's a that's a tough question. Yeah, loaded. I'm are sorry. there <laughs> yeah, and are there key features? Well, I'll tell you. Um, there are some really good features of the leaves that that do you know have taxonomic significance, and we don't think of you know we think of leaves as being very plastic and. Uh, maybe not telling uh, good evolutionary stories, but that's not necessarily the case. At least sort of at the, in the big picture, there are uh, whole groups of palms that can be defined just on their leaf morphology. Wow. Uh, so um, palm leaves are important. Palm flowers are certainly Im- important in taxonomy, but I almost think fruits have a little more tax- uh, taxonomic value mm-hmm. than flowers, at least with the groups I've worked with. But again, I'm, you know, I might be just sort of seeing things through my <laughs> personal perspective, uh, other people working in other groups of palms might have a different yeah. answer for that question. But, pretty well-informed perspective, I think. But um, <laughs> in terms of driving evolution, that's, that's the million-dollar question. And I don't think we're there yet. Uh, you know, we're still we're getting to the point where we, uh, we have a, a good phylogeny for the palms, so we have a good evolutionary diagram of what we, how we think uh, the major groups of palms arose within genera. There are still there are still genera that have not had recent taxonomic treatments that are are still taxonomically a kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. And certainly within certain large genera, 
uh, we don't have phylogenies of the species. So wow. there's still work to be done there. Yeah. But I don't know, you know, boy, saying what's driving evolution in the palm family, <laughs> I, that's, that's tough. Yeah. I, I don't have an answer for that. And that's okay. That's the beauty of the, yeah. the and scientific then, world. You know, palms have been around for a very, very, very long time. Right. So they've had a lot of time to, to, to evolve. Or not evolved. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, some of the earliest angiosperm fossils are palm fossils. Wow. So they, they, they go back a long ways. Yeah, I mean, they are a flowering plant, after all. I don't think uh, that, that hits home readily, because I think uh, more people know palms for, like you said, the leaves and the fruit. Um, but even the fruit itself, they don't all produce coconuts, <laughs> right? It, no, they don't. No, no, they don't. Palm fruits are, are, are really uh, quite interesting. They typically are, are fairly large, and, and a meaning, large meaning, say, oh, like the diameter of a quarter. Okay, so they're um, not like dust-like or tiny. No, there, there are no, no palm seeds that are dust-like. Uh, the smallest palm seed I know is a little uh, genus from, from China called Guihaya, and it has tiny seeds that are, well, tiny by, by palm standards, and they're maybe the size of... Oh gosh, what? How could I describe it? Maybe the size of like a sunflower seed. Oh wow! Maybe a little smaller than that, but right. a small sunflower seed. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, fair, you know, fairly small for a palm. Yeah. And then of course they they go up from there, and the largest seed in the plant kingdom belongs to a palm. That's true. Uh, That's the one from the Seychelles, right? Yeah, the double coconut, so called. Yeah, wow. got one sitting here on my desk that I'm looking at. Nice. Great paperweight. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I don't use it for paperweight. It's too big and clunky to move around. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good conversation starter because it sort of you know, has a scandalous shape. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's that's why there's some plants that you just have to you have to giggle. Yeah, yeah. but not the, it's the largest seed in the plant kingdom, but not the largest fruit in the plant kingdom. That honor goes elsewhere. Uh, you know the largest fruit in the plant kingdom? I don't, actually. Oh, come on. Think about it. Okay. Think of those state fairs where you get, you know, pumpkin, pumpkins. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I don't. It's weird because I, I, for as plant centric as I am, I still fall into that. It, that's a vegetable. It's not sweet enough. But that a gourd is a fruit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. So you are the first person, if I may put you on the spot here, that I've ever talked to. Uh, that has a species named after them. Care to uh, care to elaborate? Yeah, well, you 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 worked the Google machine pretty well there, didn't you? <laughs> to figure that out. Um, I do my homework. Uh, you do. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it's a palm from New Guinea, um, and uh, it was something that I I was part of a, a team that went to New Guinea to explore, collect palms. It included workers from Kew. Royal Botanic Gardens here in England and from in the Indonesian University. This is the Indonesian half of the island of New Guinea. Okay. What used to be called Irian Jaya and is now called Papua, and I think it's now been split into two provinces. Uh, oh wow! And I can't I can't remember the names of the two provinces, but it's Papua something and Papua something else. But um, so it was western. It's basically the western half of the island of New Guinea, and we were there in the Indonesian half, and. Uh, Collecting palms, and uh, we collected a palm, which at the time we we didn't quite know what it was. We knew the genus, but we didn't know the species. And uh, but it was a genus that that needed a lot of work anyway. So uh, we just sort of said, well, you know, we'll let someone else worry about that. <laughs> it was not the genus I was studying, so I I wasn't you know going to pursue it. Uh, but one of the um, students who was with us 
uh, ended up doing a revision of that genus, taxonomic revision for his, I think it was for his PhD. And then he and uh, John Dransfield from Kew, who was on the expedition, the, together they they published the, the name of the species and named it after me. Nice. Which was very a huge honor. I was yeah. I was really quite uh, chuffed by that. That's awesome. It's quite the distinction to have. Yeah. Although it's it's a poem that no one's seen since. I mean, it's known oh. from that one collection. Wow. <laughs> no one. But it's it's you know it's a remote area. No right. one's been back. I think. So. Right. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a matter of accessibility, and I'm sure uh, you know yeah. those areas are are not the easiest to get to, which might actually be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So in terms of uh, taxonomy as a whole, you know, I kind of see in my limited experience with academia, this push more towards testing theories and ecology and uh, like bigger picture studies and, and, and kind of a falling out for taxonomy. Do you see that pattern? And is there kind of, I mean, obviously there's still an, a, a need for that sort of science, but, um, you know, is there a call to action and a need for more burgeoning taxonomists? Oh, I think every few years somebody writes a, a you know editorial about the need for taxonomy, and it falls on deaf ears. Um, in fact, it was it was funny that there was a, I think it was an article, I think it was published in Nature about how a taxonomist, in this case, it was a, a he was a he studied invertebrates. I think they, I think they were even annelid worms or flatworms or some sort of worm, um, and the taxonomist who was studying the worms was basically auctioning off naming rights. Hmm. And um, the letter to nature was kind of scandalized by this. You know, this is a new low for taxonomy. Uh, And people commented on this, that, you know, social media, that it's easier to get a paper in nature about taxonomic practice than it is to get an actual taxonomic paper published in nature. And, you know, nature will, unless it's a new species of dinosaur, nature doesn't publish taxonomic papers. Um, And yet they'll publish an editorial about how, you know, isn't it terrible that taxonomists are reduced to selling naming rights? Um, And it is, it's a question of money. Uh, grant money for doing taxonomic work is, is almost non-existent. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, uh, uh, young faculty, you know, new faculty hires, they're, you know, if they want, they're trying to get tenure, they have to bring in the big grants. Uh, they're not going to do it doing taxonomy. Yeah. So the pressure is is for doing other things. Uh, certainly the molecular phylogenetics is still going, but Again, I think it's I think that money is sort of drying up unless it's a crop plant or a medicinal plant or something, you know, that has some sort of uh, uh, human use. Yeah, the anthropocentric uh, climate of uh, our view of the plant world is kind of troubling. Um, but yeah, I don't exactly. think I don't think auctioning off naming rights should necessarily be seen as a uh, uh, as a low, um, you know, with the way funding is changing, as you mentioned, crowdsourcing is becoming a new way of making money. And if you can drum up the interests, uh, that's something to be well. You know how it's it, in reality, it's no different than the fact that you know 19th century naturalists would name things after their benefactors and their patrons. Certainly, um, it's the same principle. So. Yeah. So yeah, I I mean it doesn't bother me that somebody would auction off naming rights. I mean, Nor I. It's great. Yeah. I, I you know it's like damn, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, there's always the chance, and 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 the cool thing is too is someone that donor gets that plant named after them, and you can bet they're going to be telling everyone. So it drives attention too. Something that I think is sorely needed for a lot of plant communities. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that's great. Um, so, if anyone wants to get a hold of you and learn a bit more about your work, uh, how do you recommend them reaching out? Well, I'm I'm I just joined ResearchGate. <laughs> Are you on ResearchGate? I personally am not because I'm still trying to get theses published. But once I do, I will be on there. Well, I, a friend of mine who's uh, getting his master's degree. Uh, texted me the other day and said, are you on ResearchGate? And I said, well, no, should I be? And he said, yeah, it's like Facebook for science geeks. And I said, well, great, sign me up. So so I'm there. Uh, uh, but, I, you know, I have an email address here at, at, at Florida International University. It's my last name and the first initial, so Z-O-N-A-S at F-I-U dot E-D-U. Wonderful. And uh, any parting words you'd like to say for burgeoning taxonomists out there? Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> uh, follow your passion. And if you're passionate about, you know, little uh, invertebrates or worms or or understory plants or tropical rainforest trees or palms, go for it. Wonderful. That's a, that's a great, great message for anyone. But thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. You know, I've, I'm a fan of your work and I've definitely benefited from your Creative Commons open source picture usage. So uh, I thank you in defense of plants. Uh, uh, Great. Um, I'm I'm glad somebody can use those photos. So I'll look forward to seeing my photos on your 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 blog then. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks again. Okay, Matt. It's been it's been great talking to you. It's been fun talking about palms and litter trapping plants and yeah. other things. So uh, yeah, I hope we can talk again sometime. Yeah, you're always welcome back. So next time you have something new and interesting, uh, just let me know. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right, have yourself a great uh, dry afternoon. Yeah, I'm gonna stay dry. <laughs> okay. Bye right. bye. Bye now. All right, what a fun trip down memory lane, and of course, what a fascinating world of botany. Litter trapping plants are more abundant than I ever realized, and it's definitely worth looking at some of your houseplants. Some of them might actually be litter trappers. As always, you can check the show notes for more information on these topics, as well as all of the topics that are discussed on the show. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com. And while you're over there, look at all the different ways you can support the show. You can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. We also have the Patreon, as I mentioned, at the beginning of the show. Speaking of which, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A huge thank you goes out to Paul and Nick. Both of them went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. So they're doing the max they can each and every month to give Indefensive Plants a future. So thank you again to Paul and Nick. And of course, thank you to all my patrons. I couldn't be doing this without them. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.